0: Love Talk Radio.
1: Welcome to the
2: show. This is the show that never ends. I'm going to be talking for quite a long time uh, because I have three or four extra stories compared to what I normally have because the news won't stop rolling in. Can't stop, won't stop. Uh -uh, uh -uh. Um, All right, so here's what we're about to dive into. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is engaged in Twitter battles with um, Republican presidential hopefuls. They're trying to you know, score some easy points, dunk on her, and it's not going too well for them. So we'll talk about that. Um, Tucker Carlson is exposed by David Sirota and the Daily Poster as uh, the fakest of fake populists that you could ever imagine. There's a lot to say about that. We'll dive into that as well. Trump is getting obliterated in court, challenging the results of the election. Um, It's at the point now where he's done. He's toast. It's over. It's completely over. So the fact that he's still pretending to hang on is just, uh, I mean, comical. There's no other word for it. It's comical. Um, We will also talk about more excerpts from President Barack Obama's book. There are some Trump fans who are quite literally ready to die for Donald. Um, there's a lot to say about that. Uh, and I have a new study that just came out on the healthcare system that you're not going to want to miss. Um, our healthcare system is beyond atrocious, as all of you know, but you'll know it even more. Um, anyway, so without further ado, let's get started, and uh, we'll dive into it with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Republican presidential hopefuls are trying to start Twitter battles with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and it's not going too well for them. So the reason they're doing this is because they want to score some quick, cheap brownie points with the Republican base. And, um, you know, they think stuff like this will catapult them into relevancy so that in 2024, you know, they've already established more of a name for themselves in the court of public opinion. You know, in, in Republican insider circles, they, um, they all know who Nikki Haley is. They love Nikki Haley. They want her to be the next president. But the actual Republican voters are like, who? Nikki who? She, uh, you know, she was a governor, and her national profile is not nearly as big as it needs to be. So this is something, that, make no mistake about it, this is definitely a, a, a strategy on their p- part. This is, you know, this is planned out. And again, it's not going too well for them, so Business Insider reports the following. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley clashed on Twitter on Thursday over government funds towards COVID-19 relief. Ocasio-Cortez tweeted earlier Thursday suggesting that in order to get the recent COVID-19 surges under control, we need to pay people to stay home. Haley, a former Republican governor of South Carolina who spoke at the Republican National Convention earlier this year, responded to the progressive congresswoman's tweet asking her, where she expects to get the funds to pay people to quarantine. Quote, AOC, are you suggesting you want to pay people to stay home from the money you take by defunding the police? (laughs) Haley replied, or was that for the student debts you wanted to pay off, the Green New Deal or Medicare for All? (laughs) Ocasio-Cortez tore into Haley and other Republicans in Congress in her reply, quote, I'm suggesting Republicans find the spine to stand up to their corporate donors and vote for the same measures they did in March, except without the Wall Street bailout this time, she wrote. And I know you're confused about actual governance, but police budgets are municipal, not federal. Damn. Utterly embarrassing that this woman was a governor and still doesn't have a grasp on public investment. Wonder if she says federal financing works like a piggy bank or a household, too. Ocasio-Cortez continued, all this faux seriousness from folks who worship Trump for running the country like his casino.
1: Damn. Damn. See, this is where
2: the Republican perception of reality in their little bubble butts up against objective reality. And in their minds, they've all decided that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is unintelligent She's an idiot, and she has no idea what she's talking about. And so they go for these cheap, quick, easy dunks. But in the process, they end up being the idiots because they say stuff like Nikki Haley said here. I mean, this is, this is weak, man. This is weak. I want to read it again. Um, she asked her where she expects to get the funds to pay people to quarantine. Quote, AOC, are you suggesting you want to pay people to stay home from the money you take by defunding the police? Yeah, that that makes absolutely no sense because the federal government doesn't control the police budgets around the country. Like, I know you're trying to hit all your stupid Fox News, One American News Network talking points about, you know, crazy lefties and defund the police and abolish ICE and Medicare for All and Green New Deal. Like, trying to play gotcha, but you tripped over your own dick. And then she says, or was that for the student debt you wanted to pay off, the Green New Deal or Medicare for All? I love how in their world, like that's spiking the football in the end zone guys every one of those things polls phenomenally well abolishing student debt the green new deal although the numbers on that may have come down recently i know originally it was like 80 percent or something ridiculous of people supporting it but medicare for all 70 percent see they're they're too much in their own bubble They just assume that everybody in the country is like drunk on Fox News and all you have to do is say the words Medicare for all and they're like, oh, gross, Medicare for all, gross. No, 70% of the country. There's one poll that had 51% of Republicans, Republican voters, who were like, yeah, I kind of want everybody to have health care. So it's not going to work. We're going to see something that's very disturbing moving forward and we're already beginning to see it now. I think that these old stuck up, ancient politicians are now understanding that it's, it's the internet era. And so you have to kind of be relevant in that way to make it politically. And so you're seeing this with Marco Rubio, for example, you're seeing this with Ted Cruz. They've all been doing a Trump impression for years now. They saw that Donald Trump succeeded and became president and they were like, okay, we need to try to copy him and do what he did And so now you see Marco Rubio out there pretending to be a populist, changing some of his views or pretending to change some of his views on trade and things of that nature. Uh, You see Ted Cruz trying to, like, you know, Twitter burn people on a regular basis in a way that previously he never did. Because they all saw the model of success is Trump, and Trump's extremely online. And so they're trying to be exactly like that. Now, Nikki Haley, she's not comfortable doing this crap. You think she's comfortable getting in Twitter fights? Of course not. She's she's out of her comfort zone, and she's doing it because she wants to be president. She wants to run in 2024, and she thought this would be quick and easy. But no, there's the two most online politicians in the country, Donald Trump and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. You're not going to get the better of her on Twitter. Are you insane? Ah, Man. One of the reasons why... It makes all the sense in the world from a strategic perspective for Democrats to embrace leftism is that you bait Republicans into taking their mask off. And what I mean by that is you they'll be upfront about the fact that, yeah, I don't want everybody in this country to have health care. Yeah, I don't want, you know, a jobs program. I don't want people to have higher wages. They will admit all this stuff. You can get them to take the bait if you unapologetically argue for this stuff. And you're getting a little taste of it here with what Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said and what Nikki Haley was saying. She baited Nikki Haley into making a fool of herself. And forget policy substance, which is true. On the actual policy itself, you should support these things. But even from just a strategic perspective, even if you're a, a, a terrible corporate Democrat who doesn't believe in any of these things, at least strategically, you should act like you believe in these things. Because you're going to win more elections that way. You're going to bait Republicans into taking their mask off and showing that they really believe in not improving people's lives. So, I mean, listen, this couldn't have gone any better, in all seriousness. Nikki Haley thought she'd be in-out, dunk on her, move on, get some social media brownie points up her public profile. Instead, she made a damn fool of herself. She made a fool of herself. And uh, it's, going to be, it's going to be tough to watch all of these Republican politicians trying to fit into the Trump era of politics and the extremely online era of politics, because none of them are comfortable doing it. They're not. None of them are comfortable doing it. Trump and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez are the most online politicians. Everybody else is playing catch-up to one extent or another. And you can almost smell the desperation on the likes of Nikki Haley and other Republican politicians. So they're trying so hard, and it's like, that's part of the problem. Part of the problem is that you're trying so damn hard, and we can all see through it. So anyway, keep embarrassing yourself, and um, really, ultimately, what happens is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is the one who gets the easy dunks on them, because they make it so easy for her. Okay.
1: Let's make fun of Tucker Carlson.
2: David Sirota's outlet, The Daily Poster, did some digging and found an incredible fact about Fox News star Tucker Carlson. Tucker Carlson slammed former President Barack Obama in April of 2017 for giving a $400,000 paid Wall Street speech, calling it indefensible. By the way, he's right. What could the former president possibly say, A, that we haven't heard, B, that would be worth $400,000 for an hour, the Fox News host asked on his show. Five months later, Carlson and Obama both spoke at the same conference hosted by the Wall Street giant, the Carlyle Group, a private equity colossus. According to Bloomberg, Obama discussed his life and the decisions he made in the White House. It was one of three finance industry speeches Obama did in the span of weeks. Carlson, who has been known to criticize Wall Street on his show, spoke on a panel with other journalists. He also, he has also done speaking gigs with J.P. Morgan and the investment banking firm Jeffries Group. Carlson bills more than $70,000 per appearance, according to his profile on the Washington Speakers Bureau, The revelations about Carlson were included in records obtained from state pension systems that invest in private equity firms. This is a great job here by the Daily Post for finding this. Because I've never seen more concrete evidence, one might even call it proof, that Tucker Carlson is a fake populist. Listen, it should have been clear all along that this is his game. This is the lane that he's found, Um, namely because what he does on his show, and I'm sure all of you recognize this, he'll do segments every now and then that are genuinely good segments, where, like, one time he came out in favor of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders and their, their bill to limit the amount of interest that banks could charge you at 12%. It's basically like a bill to stop loan sharking, to stop them ripping you off, and he came out in favor of that. He's had some good segments when it comes to trade and how all the jobs are being outsourced, and that's terrible. He's good when it comes to war. He's had uh, John Bolton on and and held his feet to the fire and stuff. Now, my my bone to pick with Tucker has always been, as he makes these arguments, as he takes a stand on things that matter, what he does is redirects that support, redirects that populist energy right back to supporting the people who are exacerbating the problems, that he claims to be against. So in other words, you can't do those segments and then support Donald Trump. You can't do those segments and then down ballot support Republican politicians. You just can't do it. And I think it would have been a fascinating test for Tucker and he would have really exposed himself quickly if it had been Donald Trump versus Bernie Sanders. Because now you have the clearest example ever of a fake populist who's been outed as a fake populist versus a real populist in Bernie Sanders. And what are you going to do, Tucker? How do you keep the, you know, the fake populist mask on in that scenario? Because what he would do is he'd he'd outwardly support Trump, and then all of a sudden his whole shtick is up. So, I mean, this is just a more clear example of that dynamic. Because every now and then, you know, I, I would do segments every now and then, and I would say the same thing I'm saying now, which is, oh, he made a great point on this, but here's why... He's all talk and no action because he's redirecting the energy to support Republican politicians. Well, now you see it goes even deeper than that. Now you see, I mean this, is, this, I mean, this is just like Obama in terms of the Wall Street speeches that he's giving, but also in rhetoric versus reality. See, Obama did this. Obama would go out there and say some tepid things like, you know, that Wall Street should be held accountable or whatever. And then he would turn around and give them a bailout with no strings attached. And you'd be looking at it like, what are you, what are you doing? And you'd have people on Wall Street who play into this kabuki theater, and also because they're idiots, they they would argue that like Barack Obama is being so tough on us, and it, his his anti-rich language is like that of Nazi Germany. I'm serious. There are people, we've covered those stories of people on Wall Street who act like you know Obama's gonna put private equity people in camps or something. But, like, again, the rhetoric never matched the reality. So Obama would say some things that were tough on Wall Street, and then he'd give him a bailout with no strings attached. And why do you think it is that when Obama left office, he got paid by Wall Street? Because really, ultimately, most people on Wall Street understood that in terms of how Obama governed, it was very beneficial to them. It was very beneficial to the top 1% and to the executive class. And so that's him getting repaid, those $400,000 speeches. And in the case of Tucker, he's not in government, so he's not, you know, not about policies he's personally pursued because he's he's not in government he hasn't pursued any policies but it, it does reflect that they all know the game they all know that yeah he might say some things every now and then that seem tough on us but ultimately he's going to end up supporting the politicians who give us everything that we want and so listen this is how washington works you have the people who are more honest about their corruption and then you have the people who mask their corruption well and can do the fake populist tap dance and there are very few people who say the right things and also believe the right things, and their actions show that they believe the right things. So, I mean, yeah, mask off moment, man. I, now, how could anybody wiggle their way out of, out of this one? Even the most hardcore Tucker fan. Now you know the, the populist stuff he says. You can't take it seriously. There's, I mean, it's just it's an act. In fact, there was a, a, a court case where Fox News argued not to take Tucker Carlson seriously, you know. And, and this is just like with the Alex Jones court case, where they were like, "No, no, he's playing a character." It looks like they're all playing characters. It looks like they all found a lane. And he, you know, after all these years, by the way, he's rebranded himself a number of times because he's been on all these different networks. He's been on CNN. He's been on MSNBC. Um, and he finally found a lane that worked for him—the traditional Republican lane, when he was wearing the bow tie and getting eviscerated by John Stewart on air—that didn't work. So now we found a lane like, ooh, the the paleo conservative, the populist conservative, and okay, it, it worked in terms of now you're getting the audience, but now you see how the sausage is really made. That perhaps Tucker Carlson and Barack Obama are not too different when it comes to corruption, when it comes to taking money from uh, powerful interests. So yeah, it's uh... <laughs> everybody's everybody's made this a meme now. It's funny because. I don't feel like I say it that much, but I guess I do. It's time to pound the gavel on Tucker Carlson, because Tucker Carlson is uh, very clearly one of the fakest of fake populists, as fake as, say, Donald Trump, as he does his tax cut package for the rich, the 2017 tax cut law where 83% of the benefits went to the top 1%. It encouraged outsourcing. All at the same time, he's out there pretending like he's against outsourcing and he's fighting for working people. Tucker Carlson is basically in that exact same category – And this is such a clear example of it here. All right, next President Trump. is getting absolutely obliterated in court, challenging the results of the election. Um, He and Rudy Giuliani and his legal team are trying to get all of the mail-in votes in Pennsylvania thrown out. Now, the judges did not take very kindly to this idea, and I want to read you some of the opinion here. We have um, plaintiffs, ask this court to disenfranchise almost 7 million voters. The court has been unable to find any case in which a plaintiff has sought such a drastic remedy in the the contest of an election in terms of the sheer volume of votes asked to be invalidated. One might expect that when seeking such a startling outcome, a plaintiff would come formidably armed with compelling legal arguments and factual proof of rampant corruption such that this court would have no option but to regrettably grant the proposed injunctive relief despite the impact it would have on such a large group of citizens. That has not happened. Instead, the court has been presented with strained legal arguments without merit and speculative accusations, unpled in, op- in the operative complaint and unsupported by evidence. In the United States of America, this cannot justify the disenfranchisement of a single voter, let alone all the voters of its sixth most populated state, Our people, laws, and institutions demand more. At bottom, plaintiffs have failed to meet their burden to state a claim upon which relief may be granted. Therefore, I grant defendants motions and dismiss plaintiffs' action with prejudice. Now, this is just a little highlight of what it's been like around the country. In fact, let me show you some more here. Here's everything you need to know. The Trump campaign and other Republican interests have filed at least 36 election lawsuits. At least 24 cases have been denied, dismissed, settled, or withdrawn. In at least nine cases, Trump and GOP lawyers chose chose voluntary dismissal. No court has found a single instance of fraud. No court has found a single instance of fraud here's the thing, guys, and I'll go a step further because I feel like this is the real showstopper of a point. Even if you grant Trump and the Republicans every single argument they're making, even if you say, you know what, I'll give it to you. Every single thing you're saying, we're going to say it's true. And um, we're going we're to throw it out. We're going to throw out all the votes that you want thrown out that you're presenting in court, okay? Even if you do that, Joe Biden wins. Even if you do that, Joe Biden wins. So understand how ineffectual what they're doing is. When you're at the point where even if we grant you everything, you still lose. It's like, why are you wasting your time? What are you doing? But beyond that, obviously, when you actually put these th- hold these things up with some scrutiny, well, then it's clear, not only am I not going to grant you everything, I'm not going to grant you 25% of things, I'm not going to grant you 50% of things, I'm not going to grant you 75% of things, I'm granting you none of it, because it didn't hold up in a court of law, because when you actually had to prove the case, you had nothing but nonsense speculation and Claims that originated on Facebook. So beyond this, there's a a character by the name of Sidney Powell. This is really interesting. Sidney Powell was making these over-the-top, wild, insane, speculative claims about the election. Claiming, oh my God, we have mass voter fraud, it's a rigged election, Um, and she was brought on to be part of Trump's legal team. What happened is, just yesterday, they axed her, and the Trump campaign released, um, you know, a letter saying she's actually not on our legal team. She's working independently. She's not with us. Now this is on the eve of what was supposed to be the biggest evidence dump to prove their case of a fraudulent election. They axed the person who was going to bring, you know, all of the evidence, all the proof, going to have this huge dump of information. They axed her the night before it was scheduled to be released. Now, let me ask you a question. Why do you think they did that? Why would they fire Sidney Powell the day before she's going to expose how fraudulent the election is? Because they saw whatever she was presenting, and they were like, oh, you have nothing. And of course this won't stand up to scrutiny. And now you have Republicans like Chris Christie out there saying what's happening with the Trump legal team is a national embarrassment. See, understand, in the year 2000, Bush had a team of the best conservative lawyers in the country, and they went to work, dog. They went in and they were able to basically take an election where there was about 500 votes separating Al Gore and George W. Bush in one state, and they were able to find a way to grab the election. And it required the best legal minds and and exploiting loopholes and, you know, it was close enough where it was stealable. Now you have a situation where we're nowhere near that point. You don't have the best legal minds in the world. You have Rudy Giuliani giving press conferences with hair dye dripping down his face. You have Sidney Powell, who's a crank that they found nowhere. You have, you know... 30 lawsuits being thrown out because there's zero evidence. And you think that something's magically going to happen where Trump is going to win the election? Guys, the election's not that close. It's 306 electoral votes. They would need to overturn three or four states. And the margin in the three or four states, I mean, even the tightest one is what? 15,000 votes Or actually now it's like 12,000 votes. So Georgia, Biden wins it by 12,000. That's their closest state. Let me repeat, Florida in 2000, it was like 500 votes separating the two you got a 12,000 vote gap. They did the recount. Biden won again with the recount. Even the Republicans who are in control of these states are like, come on, son, this thing is over. What do you think is going to happen? They're going to somehow magically overturn three or four states? There's literally a 0% chance of that happening. It's not happening. So, I mean, I don't know what to tell you, man. It's gotten to the point where it's embarrassing. It's absolutely embarrassing. Now... Let me grab – oh, okay, never mind. We're done here. So the fact of the matter is you're going to have people who are hardcore Trump people who will never believe that this election is legitimate. But just know you're given every out in the world. You're given the ability to redress your grievances, and it was brought in front of courts. And when it was brought in front of courts, you lost. So I don't know how they could possibly think that it actually was won by Trump. I mean, even just go to the popular vote margin. Biden has over a 6 million vote lead now. What do you think? That all this is just, you know, it's all fake news. It's all illegals voting or whatever. And there are going to be some people out there who say yes. But what I would say to that to these people is you were never going to it was not even possible for you to ever concede defeat. So if Biden won 412 electoral votes and Biden won by 10 percent. You still would have been like, no, I think it's fake. So I guess the, the scary part of this is, though, just how many are in the Republican Party like that these days. That, you know, we covered the original poll on it. It's like 40% of Republicans who basically say the election is totally illegitimate. And that's disturbing. That's a lot of people. Now, this is not me letting the Democrats off the hook because plenty of people got duped into believing Russiagate, which was abysmal. But I think the thing that's so overwhelming about this Trump situation is that you're all getting your day in court. And you were laughed out of court because there's no there there. And yet they'll still hold on to this sentiment in the same way that, you know, the Mueller report showed that there was Trump's not a Manchurian candidate and he's not being controlled by Vladimir Putin. And people still hung on to that belief because they believe it more like a religious thing. You have the same thing going on now with the fraudulent election claims on the right, that even though you had your day in court, even though you're getting recounts in places wherever you can get recounts, you're still going to just hold on to your belief because it's more of a religious fundamentalist belief or a cultish belief. And so, you know, you can only persuade those who are persuadable. And unfortunately, that number is not nearly as many people as I hoped it would have been. I would have hoped that once we go through this entire process, you get 90% of the country. Like, yeah, of course. Maybe it's only going to be 80 or 70, you know, but um, it is over. That's for damn sure. And if anything, Trump and his people should be embarrassed. The legal team people... Because you had every opportunity to make your case, and not only did you not do that, you really embarrassed yourself. My uh, my colors are very bright today. My colors are very bright in the uh, in the monitor. I wonder how that happened or why that happened. Maybe I'll
3: fiddle with the lighting in a little bit. We'll see.
2: Okay. Fox and Friends. Fox and Friends, Fox and Friends, Fox and Friends. Fox and Friends really needs to work on their anti-Biden talking points because these ones I'm about to show you just aren't landing well. Take a look.
4: There is this uh, group. It's a left-wing think tank. It's called New Consensus. It's led by AOC's former chief of staff, and they have sent this memo to the transition team, Joe Biden's transition team, urging him to move forward with their economic agenda with or without Congress. And they say if President Biden is able to rise to this moment, he can create millions of good high-wage jobs in every community across the country, bringing this country out of the current economic depression to be better and stronger than ever before, and he doesn't need the Senate to do it. Brian?
1: Well, a couple of things. They almost lost the House because of people like AOC's former chief of staff, who is a wizard on social media. They are a small enclave of society. They don't have any practical experience. They have ideas. They don't have programs. And they don't understand how this works. There are different branches of government. There are things executive orders can do. And revamping the economy, destroying, destroying the automobile business, the oil and gas business, is not something you can do with the stroke of a pen, nor should you, or else you look really like a liar because a month ago you were on the stump saying you don't want to stop fracking and you, don't, you didn't sign up for the new Green Deal, Joe Biden. You know, what's interesting is um, – this group, which also helped AOC uh, craft the Green New Deal, they're appealing to Joe Biden directly. So they sent him the seven-page manifesto. And keep in mind, remember it was a couple of months ago he said Joe said if elected he would be the most progressive president in history? Well, they are suggesting Joe Biden could actually become the FDR of the 21st century. And so what they're saying is, open up the Fed, let's get all this money for manufacturing, and we'll turn factories into mass factories, and we'll turn car companies into car companies that only make electric cars, and we're going to uh, build charging stations everywhere so everybody can drive one of those things, and we're going to upgrade homes to be more energy efficient, and the list goes on. It is amazing,
2: and it's amazing for the exact reason I pointed out earlier, which is if you make strong left arguments, you bait conservatives into taking their mask off and telling people what they actually believe. And in this case, what they actually believe is that it's ridiculous for the president to do executive orders that spur job creation and that raise wages and that Bring back factory jobs. That's one of the, they make an argument against the president taking action to bring back factory jobs. Now, these are all things that when Trump talks about it, when Trump acts like we're going to bring back manufacturing here, they lose it. And they think it's the best thing ever. But when Biden talks about it, or when you have left-wing groups pushing Biden to do it, they fear about it. By the way, there's, they take a moment there to fearmonger about Joe being the most progressive president since FDR. So the argument is, oh, my God, being like FDR, I mean, don't do that. That's not a good thing. Guys, FDR won four times. He was so popular that Republicans were like, we're going to do term limits now because we don't think we could beat these people if we don't. And so FDR won four times. And in 1936, he won all but two states. Because it turns out, when you give the American people a little taste of social democracy, they love it. You want to know why? Because social democracy is making the government help them, making the government representative of them. And FDR used the government, the power of the government, to dig us out. Of the Great Depression he did the New Deal we had factory creation we had shovel ready projects people loved him he was beloved by the nation and then now they're using these arguments like if you should be afraid of a president who acts more like FDR no you should embrace it and they would embrace it the people would embrace it even Republicans would be like whoa okay this is good for the country you know soon as people soon as people see the tangible benefits they know the deal if you materially improve people's lives then it's a lot harder to tell them that this person is your your enemy so they're fear-mongering about bringing factory jobs back they're fearmongering about a strong executive branch using executive orders by the way Trump does a lot of executive orders again they don't they're not against it. In principle, they're only against it if a Democrat does it. And even, like, the fearmongering about electric cars. Why, why would that be something to fearmonger about? Do you want to, you know, use oil and gas forever? And the answer might be yes. The answer might be yes. Like, yeah, let's just use it forever. Forget about the pollution angle. Forget about climate change. But if you create thousands of jobs and you do it, and you build electric cars, where's the downside? In fact, I forgot which country it was, but I saw an article the other day, headline the other day about how one of the European countries, I think the year's 2030, from 2030 and on, there will be no more gas cars. They say they have to be electric from 2030 and on. And honestly, listen, this is the type of action you need in order to really bring about change. Oftentimes change is bottom up, but there are some issues that are so overwhelmingly important that you do have to do it from the top down. You have to set an example at the top, and you have to make rules at the top that uh, bring about the change that we need, because sometimes you need drastic change. So, oh, the other point that I wanted to rip apart a little bit, he said, oh, uh, this was Brian Kilmeade, they almost lost the House because of people like AOC's former chief of staff, talking about Shoy Kott. He's one of the co-founders of Justice Democrats, by the way, along with myself and Jen Kuger and, and Zach Exley. Um, Nonsense. Nonsense. We spoke about it the other day. Every single Democrat who was for Medicare for All won re election, including in swing districts, including in lean Republican districts. There were some districts that were Republican plus six. If the Democrats supported Medicare for All, they won. So, this idea of like, oh, you almost lost the House because of the left, utter nonsense. There is zero evidence to back that claim. Zero. A lot more evidence to back the idea that it's the the moderate corporate wing of the party, the Nancy Pelosi wing of the party that is responsible for the destruction. Blue dogs got wiped out. Blue dogs got obliterated. So no matter what, guys, they were going to make this case. No matter what, they were going to argue that the left is to blame, the left is the problem, the left is unpopular. But again, reflect on this for a second. There's deep irony that they they make this case at the same time that they're arguing against, you know, increased wages and bringing back factory jobs. So you're baiting them into taking their mask off. And in the case of the Fox News hosts, they don't. There's nothing beyond in their mind: Republican good, Democrat bad. And so no matter what, they're going to try to scare you about a Democratic agenda, even when it's when it's an agenda like hey, let's help the American people and get them jobs and higher wages. Then Fox News is like, they want to give you jobs and higher wages. (laughs) Unbelievable. Well, thank you for admitting (laughs) that you never really cared about the issues. You never really cared about the people. You're just playing for the Republican team. That's what it is. That's what it is. That's exactly what we just saw there. And, you know, when you really take it in, Soak it in and reflect on it. I feel like this is the kind of stuff that uh, can change people's minds. You know, don't get it twisted. I'm under no illusions about the fact that the majority of people who watch Fox and Friends and watch it because they think they're getting real information, they're probably not going to be moved. But if there's any amount of reason left in the minds of even 5% of the viewers, this is the sort of stuff, once it's pointed out to them, where they go, that is kind of funky, isn't it? Isn't that weird? They're against job creation. They're against increased wages. They're against, you know, Joe doing what he can to get the country back on track, to get the economy back on track. Seems like partisan tribal garbage. Garbage. All right, we're going to go to Morning Joe. Joe Scarborough explained exactly how the next few years are going to unfold under Biden. Um, It's not pretty, and I have a bad feeling that it's actually pretty accurate.
4: Well, will preview to Morning Joe for tomorrow and Tuesday, certainly, because we know that Biden's incoming chief of staff says that the president-elect is going to start announcing cabinet positions on Tuesday. What do you think, Joe, of the names that have been floated out there? And and do you think having centrists in the cabinet is a way to bring the country back together, or does it alienate progressives who helped elect them?
1: Well, it's going to be really hard for for Joe Biden to strike that balance, but in a way he's going to be able to say – uh, what Bill Clinton was able to say to progressives uh, from 1994 forward, after a group of us got elected in the House, very conservative, um, we were always able to keep Bill Clinton in check. And he could turn to his progressives and say, "Listen, I can't, I can't do anything with these people.
0: Mm. Uh,
1: so I, I, I've got to do what I can to pass legislation." And that's why, together, we balanced the budget for the first time in a generation, balanced it four years in a row for the first time since the 1920s, passed welfare reform, uh, passed Medicare reform, did a lot of things, a lot of centrist things, because that's all a Democratic president and a Republican Congress could do. Uh, Joe Biden's going to find himself in the same exact position, and I can certainly understand it's going to be very frustrating for progressives. I do think, though, if you listen to uh, a lot of Democrats, especially in the House, uh, it's, it's, it's an approach, a more centrist approach, that they're going to be far more comfortable with as well going into 2022.
2: Mm-hmm. <sighs> that hurts because I think that's really plausible. So he's saying, "Hey, they'll tell progressives, Biden and his team will tell progressives, ah, what do you want me to do? My arm is twisted. I can't I can't even do anything because there's we got to deal with the Republicans and the Republicans are totally unreasonable and the Republicans are against you know us and our priorities. So what am I supposed to do? Damn it. Gosh darn it. Darn tootin." I can't believe I have such ballyhoo luck, shenanigans, <laughs> poppycock. <laughs> like, this is what they're going to say. And then the left is going to, since it's so easy to placate the left and give them a couple head pats and tell them that they're wonderful, and um, it's going to be a situation where the left is like, ah, you know, they are right. The Republicans are kind of bad. I guess we can't do any of these things that we want to do. What are you going to do? And so the list of priorities that Joe Scarborough ran through there, working with the Bill Clinton White House, balanced budget, welfare reform, Medicare reform, centrist priorities. So this is what I've already predicted. I told you guys the best part of Biden's term is going to be the first day or the first week where you get a bunch of executive orders that are actually decent executive orders on things that you and I would agree with, like getting back in the Paris Climate Agreement, getting rid of a lot of the Trump deregulation, uh, protecting Dreamers. Like There's going to be a bunch of executive orders where we're like, hey, that's cool. Might even do some stuff on... By America, so job stuff, all great. But after that first week, oh my God, buckle up, because it's it's going to get ugly. No matter what happens in the in the runoffs in Georgia, um, it's going to get ugly because you're going to have Joe Biden make the case that I have no choice. I got to work with these Republicans, and we got to we got to get some stuff done. So why not focus on bipartisan priorities? And the bipartisan priorities will be stuff like. A grand bargain I hope I'm wrong sweet Jesus Joe prove me wrong don't do the grand bargain don't cut Social Security and Medicare don't do it don't do it don't do it but I fear that's exactly what's gonna happen because if you're really gonna work with these people they're only gonna work with you on their terms they're only gonna work with you on their terms and Joe has no problem doing that as he's shown throughout his career the bankruptcy bill the crime bill the Patriot Act the Iraq War He's got no problem being a moderate Republican because he kind of is a moderate Republican. So I feel like he'll be way too willing to go down that path because he kind of believes in that path. But point is, the argument they'll make to the left is one of, and it'll be dishonest, but the left will fall for it. You know, we totally agree with you and we're totally with you and we want to do all these amazing things. but we just can't because they're Republicans. What am I going to do? They twisted my arm. Oh shucks. And we'll be perpetually frustrated. So it's an out for the Biden people. Not only to ignore the left, but to tell the left, I want to do the things you want to do, but I can't. Don't fall for it. See, this is why we got to push them on the executive order front as much as possible. I mean, you could literally abolish student loan debt through executive order. I didn't know that until this month. I didn't know that. You could actually, as David Dayen points out and gives the legal rationale, you could expand Medicare to everybody in the country. You can do Medicare for all through executive order. Now, Biden won't do that. The point is, it doesn't matter how many excuses he gives. He can do amazing things with the power of the presidency. He could get us out of all the wars. He could do amazing things, but chances are he'll choose not to. And so that's how you hold him accountable. Don't fall for the head patch. Don't fall for the, oh, what am I going to do? The Republicans are so bad. Don't fall for it because it ain't true. But that argument is coming. Okay. Interesting new poll just came out that I want to share with you guys. This alludes to a dynamic that we've talked about a number of times. Happiness that President Trump lost the 2020 election is a more common sentiment than happiness about President-elect Joe Biden's victory, according to a Monmouth poll released Wednesday. About one-third of respondents, 34%, said they were happy about Trump's loss compared to 25% who said they were happy about Biden's victory. However, when the sentiment was expanded to happy or satisfied, the percentages were nearly the same, with 52% saying they were happy or satisfied with Trump's loss and 51% saying they were happy or satisfied with Biden's win. People who voted for Biden were also more likely to be happy Trump lost, 73%, than happy Biden won, 57%. 26% of Trump voters said they were angry Trump lost, compared to 36% who were angry Biden won. So this is just further evidence of the dynamic of the last election being an anti-Trump wave. And this dynamic even played out in the primary for the Democrats. Now, all the fuckery behind the scenes, notwithstanding, um, voters lean towards Biden because they had this thought that we need to go with the safe option against Trump, and I'm being told Biden is the safe option against Trump, so let's default to Joe Biden. Um, That is a fascinating dynamic And the results of that we're going to have to live with now, because not only was the anti-Trump sentiment the deciding factor, it now leaves us with this, honestly, total inability to get the things done that the people want done, because we didn't get the candidates for Medicare for all or free college or ending the wars or a green new deal. We got the candidate who ran on, Hey, I'm just not that guy and let's bring things back to normal. And the problem is you're going to have a bunch of corrupt corporatist insider goons take all the wrong lessons away from this election. The lesson they're going to take away is isn't corporatism awesome And shouldn't Democrats be more like moderate Republicans all the time? When, again, you could have ran a ham sandwich against Trump and the ham sandwich would have won in 2020. Because you're talking about a president who was overseeing an economy that was imploding and a totally out of control pandemic where now over 250,000 Americans are dead. Quarter of a million Americans are dead. So in that situation, guys, listen, it is what it is. Anybody. Anybody. Anybody could have beaten Donald Trump. I honestly believe even like Amy Klobuchar could have beaten Donald Trump in this scenario, assuming she had gone through the primary. So this is a giant setback for the left, because now the arguments against the left are going to be exactly that. And unfortunately, I don't think the left is really all that prepared to rebut those arguments in an effective and efficient and pithy way. So here we are. But When you see these poll numbers, that picture is pretty clear, that nobody, very few people were actually voting for Joe Biden for Joe Biden. They were just voting for him because they were voting against Trump. And this is why you saw a giant enthusiasm gap. You know, the polls early on were amazing. They were overwhelming. Basically, nobody was enthusiastic about about Biden, and all of Trump's base was enthusiastic about Trump. And so this is why, you know, Biden couldn't get anybody to show up to a rally, but Trump could pack stadiums, but still Biden ended up winning because Trump is just a very divisive figure in that he evokes strong feelings in people, strong emotions one way or the other, whereas Biden is just like the default placeholder, anything but that guy. And so the American people went with what is effectively a career insider moderate Republican, because they were convinced this is the only way to defeat Trump. And again, now here we are. So I'm really disappointed that Bernie couldn't even after they stabbed him in the back and coalesced at the last minute, that he couldn't find a path and find a way to make the arguments he needed to make in order to win. That is the thing that keeps me up at night, is that there were arguments that could have been made that would have made it a lot more likely that he won. I wanted Bernie to explicitly compare Joe Biden to Hillary Clinton, to make the arguments to the American people. Hey, in 2016, you went with the safe option, and it turns out the safe option was not the safe option. And she lost. And you're going to do the same thing with Joe Biden? Joe Biden is the male Hillary Clinton. I wanted him to make arguments like that. I wanted him to encourage his people, like when Zephyr Teachout wrote an article explaining how Biden is corrupt. He condemned Zephyr Teachout. He distanced himself from his own staffer. So he wasn't willing to go for the jugular. He wasn't willing to make the arguments he needed to make, and now we're stuck with the consequences. The consequences are four years of Joe Biden, four years of moderate Republican change, and... Um, an emboldened Democratic establishment that really believes, really believes, corporatism is the way, triangulation is the way, the third way is the way. And that hurts, man. That hurts. But, you know, when when you peek under the hood, you can see the litany of data points that say the exact opposite, that he was just a placeholder. It could have been anybody. And um, Donald Trump was on the way out no matter what at this point. So, And if anything, there was still an underperformance from Joe Biden. The polls had him at 351 electoral votes. I thought 320, worst-case scenario. He got 306. And you had the Republicans massively overperform in the House and massively over, overperform in the Senate from what they were supposed to do. That's something to fear. That's something to be concerned about. But that's not going to be digested. That's not going to be you know, taken into the autopsy and, and the strategy of what to do moving forward that's going to be dismissed. And the only takeaway is going to be Biden's way is the way be a moderate Republican. And that's how you win. And unfortunately, we're now doomed to have incremental change, pocket change, if any change at a time when we really, really, really need a new FDR. All right, let me take a break. When we come back, I got Barack Obama's new book. You're not going to want to miss this. Stay right there, everybody. It's going to get Very, very interesting. y'all, we're back. Sorry for the extended delay there. I had to fiddle with the lighting settings because camera's a little bit bright today, and I don't know why. But you know what? It actually doesn't look bad. I might even like it a little bit more, so we're just going to go ahead and deal with it. You know what I'm saying? Okay, let's talk about Obama. I got more excerpts from his book. All right, here we go. Here we go, baby. So we have some more excerpts from Barack Obama's new book, and uh, this one was blowing up on social media for obvious reasons. I felt quietly angry on his behalf, talking about George W. Bush. To protest a man in the final hour of his presidency seemed graceless and unnecessary. More generally, I was troubled by what these last-minute protests said about the divisions that were churning across the country, and the weakening of whatever boundaries of decorum had once regulated politics. This is Barack Obama with George W. Bush going to his inauguration. There were protests of George W. Bush. Barack Obama was angry about it. He's calling protests of George W. Bush graceless and unnecessary. And he's decrying, literally, he used the word, he's decrying the breakdown of decorum, good sir. Breakdown of civility and decorum, good sir. He's, he's like being my stuck-up character, but in real life. With George W. Bush, when he left office, he had one of the lowest approval ratings of all time in the entire history of the US presidency. If I remember correctly, his approval rating was 22%. Just so you know, Trump's is way higher than that, way higher, 22% his approval rating was, why? Because he waged multiple illegal wars and the economy also tanked and we had the subprime mortgage crisis and the great recession. So Barack Obama, sitting next to a war criminal. By the way, there was also torture done under his administration, George W. Bush's administration. He sees people protesting Bush and he's more mad at the protesters. See, this is the problem with the elites. The elites really do believe in the fairy tale, the myth of American exceptionalism. So Barack Obama thinks, hey, whether it's Democrat or Republican, if they're in the ruling class, well, then I give them a pass in terms of their intentions because I think they mean well. And since they mean well, anything where we disagree, it's just a disagreement. That's all it is. It's just a difference on strategy. Well, I got news for Barack Obama. Torture is not just a disagreement. It's not just a difference of opinion. Illegal wars, it's not just a difference of opinion or a disagreement. Those are supposed to be beyond the pale. Those are supposed to be out of bounds. Those are supposed to be against the law, quite literally. In the case of torture, it's unconstitutional as well. It's a violation of the Eighth Amendment protection from cruel and unusual punishment. But he doesn't see it that way. He thinks, to steal the line from George Carlin, it's a big club. You and I aren't in it. George W. Bush is in it. Barack Obama is in it. And this shows you that he always had... This is in 2008 or 2009. This shows you that he always had that thing, guys. He always was going to be Bill Clinton 2.0. He was always going to be the triangulator. He was always going to be the moderate, centrist, above-the-fray type character. Because this is him in 2009. So it was never about... It was never like he was getting into politics and running for president because he was so turned off by the illegal war that he wanted to bring about justice, he wanted to end those wars. No. You see it here. He is a a card-carrying member of the cult of the elite, and he recognizes George W. Bush is in that same cult. He recognizes they're part of the same establishment, and so he protects that establishment from the, the radical, loud, boisterous savages outsiders. Look at these peasants, angry about illegal wars and a collapsing economy. Look at these peasants. What are they doing? This is so uncivil. This, this breaches decorum. My politics are the exact opposite of this. I want more of those people in the street protesting George W. Bush. Just like I want more protesting Trump, just like I want more protesting Biden. You need to force these people to do the right thing because they're not going to do it willingly. They're basically bought and owned by corporations. They're bought and owned by Wall Street and the military industrial complex. They're going to represent Wall Street and the military industrial complex unless you force them not to do it. And in order to force them not to do it, you need bodies in the street. You need to make them feel like they have no choice. But Barack Obama thinks that's a little little too obnoxious and uncivil. And it breaches decorum. So it's unacceptable. Come on, guys. How dare you protest a a torturing war criminal who crashed the economy? How dare you do that? He's just, he's admitting that he was never the guy that some of us thought he was early on, you know? Because he did. Barack Obama gave people hope that we could have, like, a new FDR. He gave people hope that he would change the way Washington works and get, get money out of politics and end the corruption and not listen to Wall Street and do what Wall Street wants, not do the endless wars. He gave people hope on that front. But again, once he got into power, he was Bill Clinton 2.0. He governed as a corporatist, as a centrist. And, you know, I've said this before and I'll say it again. If you're a centrist in Washington, D.C., that just means you're right smack dab in the center of the swamp because they're corrupt. So a centrist in the Washington, D.C. context is not the same as a centrist among, you know, regular people in America being right smack dab in the middle of mainstream U.S. public opinion. That's a good thing. That would be, you know, like a a centrist defined as in the center of public opinion would be somebody who's for a living wage and Medicare for all and ending the wars. That'd be a centrist for the spectrum for the entire country. A centrist in D.C. means you're just a really smug, out-of-touch, establishment, elitist corporatist who continues the status quo, goes right back to business as usual, serves Wall Street and the military-industrial complex. And that's what we have here. Imagine being angry that somebody's protesting George W. Bush. My thought would be, there should be more people here protesting George W. Bush. If there was ever anything to protest, it would be torture and it would be war crimes. And this is how you know they're really in a cult and they really have drunk the Kool-Aid of American exceptionalism, is because if it was a leader of one of our official state enemies, so if people were protesting the Iranian government because they did torture and they did illegal wars, Barack Obama would be cheering those people on, calling them democracy lovers and freedom lovers and righteous. But when it's protesting the U.S. government, no, 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 now you cross the line. How dare you? That's uncivil. So it's unacceptable. I will not be reading this seventeenth autobiography of Barack Obama because the excerpts are enough to make my blood boil. Okay. A caller into Rush Limbaugh's show expressed a sentiment that I fear might be pretty common around the country right now. Watch this.
0: Hi, Rush. It's great to be here. I'm going to try to hold myself together, not get emotional here, but um, I want to harken back to your statement about Georgia and about the Trump voters. And they should be very afraid, very afraid. Trump and you are all we have left, Rush. We've spent our lives voting for these people because they're not them. And we just can't do it anymore. We're tired of being stabbed in the back rush. It's better to have an enemy that's in front of you than a friend that's behind you that's just going to stab you. They do it every time. We have a Republican-controlled state, and they won't do an audit of the vote. They won't. They just basically told every Georgian that they don't care. We were in Washington on Saturday. Me and my 33 year old son, we saw more people than we've ever seen in our lifetime, ever. And we're season ticket holders for the Ravens, for God's sakes. I've been in crowds of 8,000 people. I've been to Steelers games, for goodness sakes. I have never seen so many people, but were there any Republicans there? No. None. None. But wait, 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 wait. What, what, there were no Repu- what, what was this thing that you went to? A week ago, Saturday in Washington, D.C., about yeah, a mega rally. There must have been hundreds of thousands. Okay, it's a mega rally, and there were, you mean no elected Republicans, is that what you mean? Yes, I do. Okay. Our party leadership, quote, unquote, if this were a Democrat rally, they would all be there. They were there for the anti-Tea Party movement, walking hand in hand yep. up the steps. Yep. No one stands for us, Rush. Only you and Donald Trump. God forbid, what do we have left? I love my president. I'm not, I am not a revolutionary, Rush, but I will die for my president. This man has given more to this country than anybody, and he has no need to. None. He's a billionaire. He doesn't need this. And that's exactly right.
2: Somebody willing to die for Donald Trump. You have to ask yourself, how many of these people are out there? How many of these people are out there? You know, we, we have a sense of what percentage of the Republican Party are diehard Trump people. It's about 40% of the Republican base is just anything Trump says they're like hell yeah. But what what percentage are really believe this deep down? Because that's another level, that's next level. I don't know the answer, but I'm kind of scared to know. And the other thing is, do you believe him? I don't know. I don't know. He Maybe he thinks he would, like, die for Trump, but would he actually? I don't know. I don't know. But just the fact that he would even utter those words, oh, that's extremely disturbing. Extremely disturbing. By the way, he acts like but nobody's out there fighting for us and fighting for Trump and this election is stolen. Guys, I just... We just went through the details of it, okay? The Trump campaign and other Republican interests filed 36 different election lawsuits. You want to know what happened? 24 of them have been denied, dismissed, settled, or withdrawn. And in nine cases, Trump and his team of lawyers voluntarily dismissed the case. No court has found a single instance of voter fraud. So this is a fantasy. People are being fed misinformation, lies, nonsense on right-wing media, and they believe it, and then they think like, you know, there's a really grand conspiracy. And by the way, the Republican politicians, they're mad that the Republican politicians aren't more on the record, saying like Trump won and stuff. What they're doing is sufficiently cowardly and absurd. They're not saying anything. There's a few Republicans who've come out and said, like, this is nonsense, he lost. Mitt Romney being one of them, Chris Christie being another one. Um, But a lot of the elected Republicans are just being quiet because they don't want to piss off the base because they know Trump has the base of the party. And so that's sufficiently cowardly, that's sufficiently ridiculous. But even that's not enough for these people. They want the Republicans to, you know, go all in like Trump is and just lie. Just lie. Just make arguments that he won, even though he didn't. Arguments that are conjured up based off of Facebook memes or a segment on One America News Network or complete nonsense like there's a German supercomputer that found that Trump won over 400 electoral votes. By the way, this is what the far right-wing media has brought about. Imagine being so thoroughly brainwashed that you really think Donald Trump and Rush Limbaugh are fighting for you relentlessly. You know what they fight for? corporate tax cuts. That's what they fight for. That's Trump's signature accomplishment is the 2017 tax cut law, where 83% of the benefits went to the richest 1% of the country. And it cut the corporate tax rate as well. And it incentivized outsourcing. So really what happened with a lot of the hardcore Trump people, Let's be honest, man, they fell in love with his persona. They fell in love with like the image of Trump. That's what they did. They've been duped. They've been had that there's this guy who, like, takes no shit and is crusading and fighting for you. And really, a lot of Trumpism is also attributable to the fact that the people that Trump hates are the people that these people hate. So they see somebody who's channeling that and it makes them like him. So it really it. It comes down to the culture war in a very clear way, in a very obvious way. And people have been duped, man. I told, tell you guys all the time, so many people have been lost on that battlefield of the culture war and are willing to support people who are against their own material interests and well-being because they fell into the trap of the culture war. And I think a lot of it comes down to that. You know, They hate Hollywood. They hate you know, elites who kind of look down their nose at them and they feel like Trump and Rush Limbaugh, even though these people super serve the elites, super serve the establishment, give tax cuts to the wealthy, They view these guys, for whatever reason, as standing in opposition to the people they hate, and so there's the unyielding support. So it's still disturbing, though, every time I hear it. I mean, again, I would love to have seen the development of this dude's mindset from the beginning. How did you get to this point where you're convinced Donald Trump Is such a fighter for you that you would die for him. How did you get to this point? How did you get to this point? Walk me through it. Show me. Show me how we arrived here. Um, Power of propaganda, man. Power of propaganda, power of good PR on the part of Trump. And you're going to have a large contingent of this country that will forever be convinced that this election, which wasn't even close, was stolen. It was stolen. But this also speaks to the fracture in the Republican Party in the coming Civil War that I alluded to over the past few shows. That you are going to have the Mitt Romney wing of the party versus the Donald Trump wing of the party. The elitist wing of the party versus the more, uh, you know, working class wing of the party. I think the Trump side of that Republican Civil War will be the middle and lower income Republican voters. And um, it could get ugly. It could get ugly just like the democratic civil war has been ugly, this could get really ugly. And uh, I'll be watching it all unfold, that's for sure. All right, next.
0: Trump is
2: in trouble, bitch. Trump is in trouble, bitch. I got more lawsuits for Trump. So we have some more investigations into Trump coming from New York. Two separate New York state investigations into allegations of fraud by President Trump and his businesses are now reportedly looking into tax write-offs on millions of dollars in consulting fees, some of which appear to have gone to the president's daughter and senior advisor Ivanka Trump, according to people familiar with the matter who spoke to the New York Times. The Times reported that a criminal investigation by Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance and a civil probe by the state attorney General Letitia James, which are being conducted independently, have both apparently issued subpoenas to the Trump Organization in recent weeks for records in connection to the write-offs. This comes after a Times investigation published in September based on more than two decades of Trump's tax records found that he had deducted approximately $26 million in fees to unidentified consultants on several projects between 2010 and 2018. So. We spoke about this when the tax story originally came out. Where they went through Trump's taxes and found that, you know. He basically paid no taxes, and that was you know the, the big headline coming out of that story. But I looked at it in a little bit in a slightly different way, because the reason why he wasn't paying taxes is because he really wasn't making any money. Um, the bigger issue to me, there were a few things. One of them is that we learned he made about 73 million dollars from foreign investors while he's president, which is a huge red flag, huge corruption red flag clear violation of the emoluments clause, and he's done favors for a lot of people as a result of this. Like, for example, you know, the Saudi Arabia multi-billion dollar weapons deal. He used to slam Saudi Arabia and say they're responsible for 9-11. Now he's giving them multi-billion dollar weapons deals as they're doing a genocide in Yemen. And this is all while they're funneling him money through his D.C. hotel. So huge corruption problem there. That was a bigger story to me. Seventy-three million dollars. That's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. And you also had Jared and Ivanka make about $130 million um, while they've been in the White House. And again, trace where a lot of that money comes from, and it's sketchy. It's really sketchy stuff, people who are probably trying to get favors. So that, to me, was the bigger story. But beyond that, we also learned, as a matter of fact, um, and Michael Cohen, his former attorney, spoke about this, He oftentimes inflates reports of his assets when he's requesting bank loans, and then he turns around and under-reports them when he's seeking to get lower taxes. Clear case of tax fraud. That's just a clear case of tax fraud. And of course, when it comes to Ivanka, he just gave a bunch of money to his daughter and then wrote it off, uh, wrote it off of his taxes and said, yeah, I don't know, it's like a consulting fee I'm paying somebody. It just happens to be my daughter. So, really, the, the investigation here is, it. I mean, he's guilty. He's guilty, clearly. He did these things. But the question is, how sloppy were they? Like, did Trump listen to his tax lawyers and do it in a way that's technically legal? Or were they so sloppy with it and just thought they would never be under this much scrutiny? And so they just did it not thinking, and then now it's going to come back to bite him in the ass. Because there are many instances of tax fraud. he's hundreds of millions of dollars in debt, but we don't have debtors prison in this country. So it's not like he would go to prison for the hundreds of millions of dollars he owes, like Deutsche Bank, for example. No. But if you screw the IRS, yeah, you can go to prison. So they might get him on tax fraud and tax dodging. And, again, there are clear examples that he did stuff that, at the very least, is clearly unethical. But does it cross that line into illegal, or did they cover their tracks enough where they're going to get away with it? Because you guys know the way it works. Oftentimes, the wealthy in this country and corporations have teams of lawyers that find these legal loopholes that they could exploit. Where you look at what they did on paper, and you go, well, that sounds illegal. But then you see the details of how they did it, and it's like, no, that was technically a loophole that was there that people can exploit, and they did exploit so I don't know. I don't know if they're going to get him or not, but I will say this. You're you're much more likely to get something against Trump through the New York investigation or investigations, plural, and not necessarily through the federal government. Like, I don't think I don't think that the feds are going to get Trump on anything. I think that it's going to be more the New York state uh, investigations, if anything. So. I mean, he's been a con con man his whole career, basically. Remember, remember, he had to pay people off after Trump University was a proven fraud. He needed to settle with people because it was clearly fraudulent. You can't you can't just start something and call it a university. You, You can't do that, by the way. But he did that. And people got cheated. It was fraudulent. And so he's already like a proven con man. So don't be surprised if there are consequences and repercussions, but at the same time, don't be surprised if there's not, because maybe they just covered their tracks enough where technically the stuff they did was legal. All right, next. There's a new study that just came out on the U.S. healthcare system. And uh, just like all the previous studies, I'm sure you can guess how this went. But the details are really wild. Hospitals in the United States charge patients as much as 1,800 percent more than their costs amid the coronavirus pandemic, according to a new study. The 100 most expensive hospitals in the United States charge between $1,129 and $1,808 for every $100 of their cost. According to a study by National Nurses United, the largest nurses union in the country, overall hospitals across the US charge an average of $417 for every $100 of their costs. The average markup has more than doubled over the past two decades, according to the report. The markups have resulted in hospitals in hospital profits skyrocketing by 411% from 1999 to 2017, hitting a record $88 billion. Again, during a pandemic. The rise in charges coincides with growing hospital mergers and acquisitions by large systems, the union said in a news release. The result is increased market consolidation, which leads to higher profits and increased charges, not savings for patients as hospital systems often claim. So this gets into a point I've made on this show many times over and a point that I'll continue to make, which is the US healthcare system is a scam on top of a scam within a scam. Everybody's screwing everybody. Everybody's price gouging everybody. You got the health insurance companies, they're a scam. You got the healthcare providers, they're a scam. You got big pharma, they're a scam. The list goes on and on. Basically any any business associated with health and healthcare is in one way or another, screwing somebody somewhere but when you get the specifics, it really, really, really is eye-opening. Like this is a real slap in the face. And we've discussed I mean, there's countless studies on this that we could bring up, but you know, one of the more interesting points to me is that um, there's a study, I believe University of Massachusetts Amherst, they found that Medicare for all would save trillion dollars over a decade, $5 trillion over a decade. Why? Because it turns out when you get rid of the price-gouging, unnecessary, for-profit, rapacious, mafia-like middleman, you save money. Yes, if somebody's no longer in the middle taking their cut, you're going to save money. And by the way, they add no value either. They add no value. They're in between you and your doctor and they take their cut. And that's another point is people like to slam Medicare for all and say it's going to take away your freedom of choice. What's hilarious is that it's the exact opposite. Medicare for all increases your freedom of choice because you can go to whichever doctor you wanna go to. Under our current system with the health insurance mafia, they could tell you you can't go to certain doctors because they're out of network. So this system limits your freedom. Medicare for all increases your freedom. And there's no longer a middleman between you and your doctor. You can go wherever you want. So let me give you some more facts because I think this really, really, really is eye-opening. there's a study by the healthcare data nonprofit Fair Health in the spring, and they found that uninsured coronavirus patients or those that receive considered out-of-network care, they face costs ranging from $42,486 to $74,310 if they require inpatient hospital treatment. This gets to the point I was just making. If you end up, let's say you're on vacation and you've got to go to the hospital, and so you're out-of-network you can get a bill for $42,000 to $74,000, even though you have health insurance. Does that sound like a good system? We also have a survey by the Healthcare research group, the Commonwealth Fund, and they found that more than two-thirds of Americans say that, quote, potential out-of-pocket costs would be very or somewhat important in their decision to seek care if they had symptoms of the coronavirus. Two-thirds of Americans. I'm going to consider the cost before going to the hospital for coronavirus because that's, I need to consider the cost. This is not something that happens in other developed countries. If you're sick, you get help. And it's paid for via tax dollars. You don't have to worry about anything out of pocket. The RAND Corporation, which is a nonprofit think tank, found that hospitals charge private insurers an average of 2.4 times more than the Medicare rates. So again, you save money with Medicare for all and you cover everybody and you have better health outcomes. There's no good argument for our disastrous private system. There was a study published in the Annals of Internal Medicine earlier this year that found that 34% of healthcare expenditures go toward administrative costs, 34%. The US spent about $2,497 per person on administrative costs in 2017 compared to 551 $551 per person in Canada, which of course has a single-payer system. 2,497 in the US, 551 in Canada. So switching to a single-payer system would drive down healthcare costs by $600 billion on administrative costs alone, according to the analysis. Then we also have The Lancet. Earlier this year, they found that Medicare for All would save the country about $450 billion per year while preventing more than 68,000 unnecessary deaths. An analysis published in PLOS one, plus one, plus medicine. Did they say PLOS, they say plus, plus, plus? Maybe I think it's just PLOS. Anyway, PLOS medicine of 22 single payer studies, 19 of them predicted net savings in the first year of the program operation. And 20 predicted savings over several years anticipated growth rates would result in long-term net savings for all plans. 20 of 22 studies of Medicare for All said, of course, you're going to save money with it. Um, the Federal Reserve Survey published last year found that about 25% of American adults skipped necessary medical care in 2018 because they were unable to afford the cost. On top of that, 26% of Americans with diabetes have rationed their insulin primarily due to cost. So stop and think about that. We have trillions of dollars for unnecessary and illegal wars in the Middle East. $7 trillion in Iraq alone when all is said and done. $7 And a couple more trillion for Afghanistan. Trillions on unnecessary wars in the Middle East. Trillions to bail out Wall Street multiple times and to bail out corporations during the coronavirus pandemic when you include what the Fed did. So trillions for war, trillions for Wall Street bailouts, trillions for corporate bailouts, trillions for tax cuts for the rich. But no, we can't rebuild our infrastructure. We can't catch up to the rest of the developed world and have universal health care or universal college this is what they try to tell you. They try to make you feel crazy for wanting to catch up to the rest of the developed world, to have the same thing that other industrial nations have. They try to make you feel crazy for wanting that. You're not the crazy one. What's crazy is what we're doing now. What's radical is the system we have now. We have price-gouging mafias ripping you off at every turn, whether it's big pharma, the health care providers, or the health insurance companies. Everybody's getting ripped off. This is such a depressing thought. But imagine living in a country without universal health care, and then we get a pandemic, and the government still doesn't try to do universal health care. That's the place we're in right now. And it doesn't matter how detailed and data-oriented my arguments are on this front. It'll just be dismissed. And the sad reality is because the Republicans are all bought by big pharma the health insurance companies, health care providers, and so are the Democrats. So are the Democrats. Obamacare was great for the health insurance companies, mandating that more people become customers of them. So you have the Democrats and you have the Republicans. They're both there to serve the health insurance companies and big pharma. They're not there to serve you. If they were serving you, they would have already done this. They would have already done Medicare for all because 70% of the country wants Medicare for All, including in one poll, 51% of Republicans wanted Medicare for All. So they're not representing you. They're representing their corporate donors. But now you know. The evidence and the arguments are overwhelming that this is the way to go. You save money, everybody's covered, better health outcomes. There's no good reason to not do Medicare for All. That should be crystal clear to everybody. And, you know, if you still are not sold on it, Go watch this segment from the beginning again and listen to all the data points on it. And I haven't even brought up the Commonwealth Fund study that ranked the healthcare systems of the world. And we were 11th out of 11. Out of 11 developed countries, we were 11th out of 11. And they do this study every, every so often. I think every few years they do this study. And the results are always the same. Embarrassing, guys. Embarrassing. We're getting screwed. It's time to fix that. Okay. David Dayen is a really great journalist, and he writes for a publication called The American Prospect. And he made an argument the other day about how any president can do Medicare for all, and they don't even need Congress. I will tell you guys, I did not know about this. I did not know about this at all. And so when I read the argument, I was pleasantly surprised to see that it's actually a pretty convincing argument. He makes a great point here. So this is Common Dreams. They say, according to Dayan, the government has picked up the exorbitant health care costs for individuals subject to a dangerous environmental hazard before. Explaining the precedent, he wrote, the people of Libby, Montana, population 2,628, share something in common with the rest of the developed world, but not their compatriots in the United States. They all have access to a single-payer Medicare for All system. As part of the Affordable Care Act, the residents of Libby, who were exposed to hazardous airborne asbestos from a vermiculite mine, owned by the W.R. Grace Company, were made eligible for Medicare for free at the discretion of the Social Security Administration and Department of Health and Human Services. It was codified in Section 1881 of the Social Security Act, 1881A of the Social Security Act. While Section 1881A was used to protect the residents of Libby who were exposed through no fault of their own to deleterious conditions, that would trigger long-term medical complications, Dayan noted that the language of the statute refers to any individual subject to an environmental exposure and therefore conveys a principle that could be applied more broadly. What is the coronavirus pandemic, if not a public health catastrophe, on a much grander scale than the one experienced in a small town in Montana? So he goes on to actually give more of the the phrasing in that portion of the law. And based on my layman's reading of it, yes, a reasonable interpretation of it is that whenever there's any sort of catastrophe, disaster, health emergency, you do have the ability to use this law and then expand it, expand who it applies to. So he said, you could start out by just saying everybody who has coronavirus, and then you could go to everybody who's had it, who has it or had it. And then you could say, hey, listen, the entire united states of america we have a pandemic this is a national emergency and using this law if something is a national emergency you can expand medicare to cover everybody now i'm sure it would get court challenges of course it would get court challenges but here's the deal if you do it and then you make the republicans take you to court well would you look at that now everybody's on the record We want everybody to have health care under Medicare because we just did it. We just did it through executive order. They want to take away your health care. Literally, literally. We just expanded Medicare to cover everybody, and now they want to take it away. They want to take it away. Make them do the wrong thing. Bait them into doing the thing that is politically toxic that you just created a third rail in politics overnight. You give everybody health care through Medicare, they're going to love it, and then Make the Republicans try to take it away, because then guess what? You crush in the next election, because now the American people know, okay, those people want to give me health care, those people don't. This is what you do now. He goes on to say, well, will Biden do this? Of course not, because he's an opponent of Medicare for all. He said in an interview, he implied, I wouldn't even sign it if it got to my desk, if it somehow got through the House and the Senate. I wouldn't sign it if it got to my desk. So he's not going to do it, but the point from David Dayen is, guys, you can actually do a lot with just the presidency. With just the presidency. I didn't know this until this month, but apparently you really do have the, the authority, if you're president, to wipe the student uh, loan debt slate clean. You just get rid of it. Because a lot of that debt is ultimately held by the federal government. So you can just be like, yeah, we don't want you to collect on that debt anymore. Wipe it clean. You could eliminate student debt. You can do Medicare for all. You could affect economic policy and trade policy easily with executive orders, like the Buy America stuff. You could, of course, end all the wars. There's a lot of stuff you could do with just the presidency. So, And, and this is the point from David Dane, is that if you have a team of lawyers who ideologically agree with you, you can find a legal rationale to do almost anything with just the executive branch. Now, you and I both know exactly what Congress is going to do. We know that in the Senate specifically, they're they're going to block everything. So they're going to block everything. Okay, you do all the good things you can through executive orders, through using the power of the presidency, and make them stop you. Will Biden do that? I don't think so. I think in the first day or week, he'll do some good executive orders, but he'll stop way short of the stuff I want him to do. But point is, you can't let him make the argument, what am I supposed to do? The Republicans, you know, what am I going to do? They twisted our arms. we got nowhere to go. Yes, you do. You have plenty of places to go. You can find a legal rationale to do a lot of stuff, and you're not going to do it. But now, I mean, honestly, just reading this article alone and learning that the president can eliminate student loan debt through executive order, this leads me to believe there's always hope now. Not hope that Biden's going to do it because he's not going to do it. But hope that all you need is one good lefty to get elected president. And that lefty could do so much good, so much good, even with the rest of the federal government hating them, being biased against them, doing everything they can to stop them. You could do so much good with just the office of the presidency. So in a weird way, this should give you hope. Because it's not like, okay, once we get a lefty elected, well then, then the fight becomes they got to wrestle the House of Representatives and the Senate, and it's going to be so many hurdles to overcome. No, what we're learning is you actually could sort of bypass all that and then make them stop you. So all you need is one good lefty to get elected and to say, I'm going to be the new FDR. I dare you to try to stop me. And then we're off to the races, and we could have a successful presidency, and we could really, really, really move in the right direction. So anyway, I love this article from David Dayan. I thank him for enlightening me on this. And um, even though Biden's not going to do it, now we know he can do it, which means we could continue to put pressure on him and put pressure on the other Democrats that, uh, no, don't tell me better things aren't possible. They're absolutely possible. You just don't want to do better things. Okay. Now we move on. They're coming after Bernie, ladies and gentlemen. They are coming after Bernie Sanders, our boy. Fox News hosts are starting to malfunction live on air. Um, Here's Maria Bartiromo attacking Bernie Sanders for simply wanting more stimulus checks during a pandemic.
4: this is unbelievable you guys thank you so much and good morning to you i think that this is exactly what is explaining what we have in front of us two different approaches To governing. On the one hand, President Trump's approach to governing has been make sure that there are enough opportunities for people to work. Give people the access to employment so that they can make as much as they want. They can make sure to work hard to ensure that they have uh, equality and access to a job and to their own money. And the other approach is to give people who do not have uh, enough Give it to them, like free school, free health care, free et cetera, $2,000 checks. And what we saw from President Trump's approach earlier this year is that that was lifting many votes.
2: That's amazing. Hey, Maria, you do know that they already did a round of stimulus. $1,200 checks went out to people, and you had the expanded unemployment benefits. By the way, this was the only part of the CARES Act that was good because it's largely a giant corporate giveaway, $5 trillion worth of a corporate giveaway. But the little thing they added in there to sweeten the package for the American people was a one-time $1,200 payment and un- expanded unemployment benefits. Trump signed that. Trump signed that. So Trump is doing the, did the thing that she's acting like he didn't do. She said the other approach from Trump is to give people, or excuse me, she says, Um, The other approach from Trump is to give people access to employment and hard work. In other words, she's arguing for a hands-off approach during a pandemic. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but a hands-off approach during a pandemic and, and an economic implosion is literally the last thing you should ever do. Ever. Ever. That would only exacerbate the crisis. Giant spike in unemployment. It would be unbelievably disastrous. And so she makes fun of Bernie. She says, well, Bernie's approach is to give people who do not have enough, give them stuff like school, health care, and checks. Yeah, give them all of that. Definitely give them health care because every other developed country has health care, and we have a pandemic and tens of millions of people who are uninsured. So check on that. Definitely give them health care. Definitely give them higher education. A lot of developed countries do free college. We absolutely can and should do that in this country. And she scoffs at the idea of $2,000 checks. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? of the country is on the brink of foreclosure or eviction. As soon as these protections are taken away, we're screwed. We're going to have a giant housing crisis, more homeless people than you could ever imagine. One article said 28 million potentially. Right now we only have maybe about a million, 500,000 to a million. 28 million. And she's scoffing at the idea of stimulus during a pandemic and an economic depression. Even the person who she loves, Trump, doesn't agree with her. And they were even, Trump and Mnuchin were pushing for a stimulus package. It was Pelosi and McConnell who were blocking it. It's amazing the things like, they're always going to attack these things, no matter what. Free health care, doesn't matter every other developed country has it. Free uh, higher education, doesn't matter that many other developed countries have it. Stimulus checks, doesn't matter that other developed countries are doing wage replacement schemes. So the government will pay you 75 or 80% of your wages just to stay home, because this is what you have to do during a pandemic. She somehow manages to fetishize, laissez-faire, free market capitalism in the midst of a crisis where that approach would exacerbate every single problem we're facing. And she wrongly says that, oh, that's uh, Trump's approach. No, he did the stimulus. And he did the stimulus because apparently he's not as dumb as you are. So they're always going to, they always are going to push their narrative and push their ideology, even when it's a square peg round hole situation with the facts and with what would happen in the country. God forbid, if Maria Bartiromo ever had the office of the presidency or had power to govern, oh, we'd never would have done any stimulus. Unemployment would be 15 or 20%. It would be, it would be beyond disastrous. It's already disastrous because we've only had one stimulus check. Um, but it would have been the suffering and the pain would have been double what it is now double. And so yeah, Bernie's right about all that stuff. And even Donald Trump understands that stimulus is necessary. Donald Trump and Steve Mnuchin understand it. The real problem, like I said, Pelosi and McConnell, but as the entire country is struggling to pay the bills, she's scoffing at the idea of more stimulus checks of a $2,000 monthly check. You absolutely should do that. Okay. Now I'm gonna lose it on a general. President Trump's former national security advisor, HR McMaster, went on the Sunday shows and made the most hyperbolic and ridiculous arguments imaginable against reducing troops in the Middle East?
4: Uh, Afghanistan, I know you feel strongly uh, about the conflict there, and our troops could continue to serve. Um, this week, President Trump halved the number of US troop presence from 4,500 down to 2,500 by mid-January, even though violence is spiking, even though the Taliban has not put ties with al-Qaeda. Is the president handing the Taliban a victory on the way out the door?
3: Yes, Margaret. In fact, what I think President Trump has done is paradoxically double down on all the flaws of the Obama administration approach to Afghanistan by conjuring up the enemy we would prefer instead of the actual enemy that we are facing in Afghanistan. An enemy uh, that, that, if they win, if the Taliban establishes control of large uh, parts of of Afghanistan, give safe haven and support base to terrorist organizations who want to commit mass murder against us on the scale of 9-11, we will be far less safe and and vulnerable to these groups. And I think what happened is the prioritization of withdrawal over our interests led to us actually empowering the Taliban. I mean, if we were going to leave, just leave, but don't force the Afghan government to release 5,000 of the most heinous people on earth. Don't, don't, uh, don't make this assumption
0: mm-hmm. that there is
3: this bold line between the Taliban and these other terrorist organizations. Hey, we saw it today with these rocket attacks uh, in Kabul and, and, the, and the images of, uh, of hundreds of, of young uh, girls fleeing these, these rocket attacks. We saw it uh, with the, you know, an attack on a maternity hospital where they gunned down pregnant mothers and, and killed infants. We saw it on the attack of, on the American university in, in Afghanistan. I mean, what does power sharing with the Taliban look like? Does that mean every other girl's school is bulldozed? Does that mean there are mass executions in the soccer stadium every other Saturday? Uh, I think it, it's abhorrent what we're doing, uh, and, and I hope that, that a, a Biden administration will reassess based again on what's in yeah. it for us. I mean, Margaret, this wow. is not a theoretical case, right? We know what happened on
1: 9-11. Bringing
2: up 9-11, to try to argue, we need to stay in a war that we've been in for 19 years 19 years our longest war notice by the way did he explain what victory is how are you going to ask to stay at a war stay in a war and you don't even explain what victory would be and when we could declare it and come home he didn't answer that why didn't he answer that because he wants to stay there permanently, he never wants to leave. Because when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. This is exactly what happened in Vietnam. The, the military people kept telling the government, "We need more money. We need more time. We need more soldiers. We got to stay there." And they went along with it for way too long. When I see the same thing, these guys are not like just you know totally objective, totally neutral viewers. No, they're always going to want more time. More money, more soldiers, and they're going to want to continue the war. Because this is what he does. Now, look at some of the arguments. They're fear-mongering about a reduction from 4,500 troops to 2,500 troops. That's not nearly big enough. It should be zero. 4,500, 2,500. And, by the way, I like how he says, well, violence is spiking. Violence is spiking with us there. We're there. We have bring them home yet. We're there. Oh, the violence is going up. Okay. We've been there for 19 years. We still have thousands of troops there. Maybe we should leave. Oh, no, I'm going to say that the reason it's going up is because we're getting out, even though we're there and it's up. He says, quote, or, or the question, the question was biased. This is manufacturing consent, by the way. The question is biased in the direction of a pro-war perspective. The question was, is the president handing the Taliban a victory? Framed a question from a far right-wing pro-war perspective. There was no question about, hey, we've been there 19 years. What do you want to accomplish by staying there? Hey, this costs $2 trillion. Was that worth it? Hey, where is there a direct threat against the country in Afghanistan today? There was nothing framed from a a reasonable perspective. It was all from a a pro-war perspective. And then he says, if the Taliban establishes control in Afghanistan, we'll have another 9 11. The Taliban controls more of Afghanistan today than they did when we invaded. So, by your own view of it, this has been a failure. The Taliban controls more territory now than they did when we invaded in 2001. And they're going to do another 9 11. You need evidence to say something like that. The Taliban didn't do 9-11. It was Al-Qaeda that did 9-11. The Taliban is a guerrilla army. They're not good. They're terrible. But they don't have worldwide caliphate goals. They're not going to do jihad and do attacks all over the West. That's not what they do. I, I can't I can't deal with these people. So he's just fear-mongering about another 9-11 to try to get us to stay at a war we've been at for 19 years with no definition of victory. And then the best part is when he starts, he's talking about there was an attack on a hospital in Afghanistan. And like, what do you wanna do? You wanna just let them attack hospitals in Afghanistan? As he's saying this, the first thing that popped in my mind was when we attacked the Kunduz Hospital in Afghanistan, we killed a lot of innocent people when we attacked a hospital in Afghanistan. So we need to protect the people of Afghanistan from having hospitals attacked by us staying there and attacking hospitals every few years accidentally. Hey, at least we did it by accident. They did it on purpose. So isn't it better to have our accidental killing of civilians and bombing of hospitals than theirs on purpose? I mean, this is ridiculous, man. This is so ridiculous. And then he keeps bringing up the fear-mongering about the Taliban, the Taliban, the Taliban. What he doesn't tell you is the other option. What he doesn't tell you is there are warlords who we've aligned ourselves with in Afghanistan and in Pakistan. These warlords, it's documented that they've had child sex slaves. And in fact, our soldiers have blown the whistle on our allies having children chained to their beds. And you know what happened? They were dishonorably discharged and the military said, shh, you don't talk about that. So we need to save Afghanistan from the evil, horrible, terrible Taliban, and keep control in the hands of child rapists. I don't want the child rapists in control of Afghanistan. The Taliban in control. I don't want the warlords, and I don't want the Taliban. But you know what? None of it is any of my business. We got water in Flint, Michigan, that isn't clean, that's still poisoning children. We have an infrastructure that gets a grade of D+. Plus. We have tens of millions of people with no health insurance in this country. What's happening in Afghanistan, in Kandahar, is none of my business, and it's none of your business. And now we're talking about a situation where the original reason they gave for going in was to kill bin Laden. He's dead. The original reason for Iraq was to kill Saddam Hussein. He's dead. We're done here. Declare victory and come home. That's it. It's over. Rebuild our own country, focus on our own issues. Instead, we have idiots like this guy arguing, no, 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 we have to stay there, don't be stupid, you're giving the Taliban a win, there's going to be another 9-11, no evidence, no nothing. So we get to violate international law and U.S. law, we get to do torture, we get to permanently occupy a country, and he gets to make excuses from now until the end of time about how we have to stay, stay there and keep spending trillions of dollars. It really is unacceptable. And then you get into the conversation of, why are we really there? Why are we really there? And unfortunately, it has a lot to do in the case of Iraq. It has a lot to do with oil. In the case of Afghanistan, it has a lot to do with opium and a lot to do with trillions of dollars worth of mineral wealth. A lot of the stuff that ends up in your cell phone is from Afghanistan. And a lot of it has to do with combating Russia and China. We don't want them to have geopolitical dominance and to have their hands on those natural resources. They won't tell you the real part of it. What they'll do is fear-monger about another 9-11, and oh my God, we have to protect the homeland. Is anybody really buying this anymore? Is anybody really buying this? We've been there 19 years. Al-Qaeda's in tatters. Osama bin Laden's dead. Saddam Hussein in Iraq is dead. Is anybody really buying that this is really about protecting the homeland or whatever bullshit nonsense? Trump should not only pull out, he should pull out now, and it should be no troops there, not 2,500. That's not even a withdrawal. And thank you to the shitty media for doing the worst job they possibly could. The reason why these people get hired is because they're going to ask questions like that. The default assumption, the duh position to this mainstream media host is, well, obviously it's ridiculous to pull out of our 19-year war, and obviously it's handing the Taliban a huge win. It's all in the framing of the question. It shows you what their beliefs really are. And they're doing the bidding of the establishment. They're doing the bidding of the military-industrial complex. And that's why mainstream media is totally full of shit. And this is why you unfortunately have to turn to YouTube shows to get the truth. A loudmouth babbling YouTuber like myself gives you more truth than these multi-billion dollar corporations looking all professional and shit. It's a joke, man. It's a joke. This is terrible. Pull out, pull out now. We're done with this.
0: Okay, let's do a few more.
2: Former MSNBC producer and now whistleblower Ariana Peccary um, tweeted something interesting. She went on Andrew Yang's podcast. Oh, shit, I fucked up. I didn't have the right graphic over my shoulder. Let me start that over for you. All right, let me start that over. Andrew Yang, on his podcast, spoke to a woman by the name of Ariana Peccary. And um, she is a former MSNBC producer, and she's really, really giving people some hard truth at the moment. So this is from something I tweeted here last night. Former MSNBC producer and now whistleblower confirming the network ignored certain Democratic primary candidates on purpose as a matter of policy. And you can see her tweet here. Actually, I just reviewed my journal on... April 25th, 2019, I was told that we were never to pursue Andrew for an interview on our show, along with several others. The list of candidates was dictated, but the reasons for allowing them or not were not explained. The first thing this should remind you of is what happened in 2016 with Bernie Sanders' presidential run, Ed Schultz, had something all planned out where they were going to do the launch of Bernie Sanders campaign on his show. He was going to announce his campaign on, on a special show with Ed Schultz, a special, I believe it was in Burlington, Vermont with Bernie and his family. It's going to be an hour long of all Bernie, why he's running all that stuff. And Ed Schultz got an angry phone call from the head of MSNBC. And they said, no, you, you're not doing this. You're not doing this show. You're not covering it. You're not covering his launch. So this is what we're dealing with. It was out in the open. It was out in the open. And now you know, former MSNBC producer, now a whistleblower, was saying, actually, yeah, this is exactly how it worked. We were told, you don't touch certain candidates. You stay away from certain candidates. Now, we can get into the conversation of why they said this. Like, we could speculate as to why it is, oh, they threaten the establishment the most. Certainly possible. Or it could just be something as simple as we don't view them as the serious candidates. We think that it's basically a vanity project that they're running to try to, you know, make their name bigger or whatever. So that's why we don't cover them. But either way, what they're doing here is completely unethical and it's wrong. It's not up to you to determine who is and isn't serious, who is and isn't acceptable, who doesn't doesn't have a chance. It's not up to you. It's up to the American people. It's your job to give them a fair hearing. And what we're learning here is they absolutely did not do that. They absolutely did not do that. They did not give Andrew Yang a fair hearing. If I had to guess, the other people that were on that list, Marianne Williamson, didn't get a fair hearing. Bernie was in an interesting situation because he got this treatment in 2016, clearly. In 2020, the media still hated him and went after him, but they did give him more coverage because it was clear he was going to be a serious contender because he came this close to winning in 2016, if they didn't steal from him, he would have won. So Bernie was in an interesting category of just despised by them, but he still got covered, but he was despised. People like Andrew Yang and Marianne Williamson were just, they weren't covered. They actively tried to bury their campaigns. And so honestly, it's a miracle that somebody like Andrew became as popular as he did, given all of the you know, institutional hurdles and barriers in his way. So he deserves a tremendous amount of credit for sort of breaking through and being a compelling enough candidate where he got a lot of support even though the entire media establishment was basically trying to destroy him. So listen, man, I don't know how else to say this. They're dishonest. MSNBC, all the corporate media outlets, they're dishonest. They're dishonest. They have their narratives while they pretend to be objective and neutral and above the fray and serious. In a weird way, they're the least serious. You get a lot more policy talk on this YouTube show from one loudmouth idiot than you do on all of corporate media. But credit to this whistleblower, Ariana Peccari. I mean, she really did a great thing here. And I'm sure she has some more crazy stories. So definitely check out that podcast with Andrew Yang to get more details. All right, guys. Last story of the day here. Last story of the day. All right, so this is something that uh, is beyond depressing, and it brings me no pleasure to show you this, but, just in, U.S. records 20 straight days of 100,000 new coronavirus infections, 20 straight days. By the way, it's more than that now, depending on when this video hits YouTube, Um, 20 straight days, 20 straight days of more than 100,000 new coronavirus cases now. BNO newsroom says another double donut day in Australia, no new domestic cases of coronavirus and no new deaths. How do you explain that? How do you explain that difference? Listen, we could have been in a situation like that, but we didn't respond effectively. You could either do economic shutdowns, but pair that with either wage replacements for people or universal basic income. that would have that would have worked and we would have kept our numbers down if we did that. Or you could keep most things open with some limited shutdowns and just mandate everybody wears masks, and also everybody has some sort of eye coverings. I think there's a strong argument for either one of those approaches. If you do, If you do the the economic shutdowns and you pay people, that does limit freedom more because you just can't do things that people would want to do and want to be out and about there in society. And, you know, if you shut everything down, of course, that does sort of limit freedom in a sense. Um, But that would also be a lot more effective in dealing with the outbreak. That also would really have held the numbers down. Um, So from a health perspective, that's the way to go. But then, yeah, you could have gone the original Japan route and had universal masks, basically, and some limited shutdowns, but kept everything else relatively normal. And if you did that, we would have had kept the numbers down. It still would be more more people with COVID than if you did the shutdowns. But um, at least you could have had some sort of mitigation effort that worked. And then in that scenario, you do sort of increase freedom a little bit because people could still kind of go about their normal daily routines. And just the only difference is you're wearing a mask and you're covering your eyes, um, you could go one of those two ways, and that's it. Any, any other any other approaches, I think, are just crazy, crazy. Like, what we have here in the U.S. is obviously a mishmash of different state rules. There's no real federal response. It's all state by state, and um, you also have, you know, different states. Some states have mask mandates. Some states don't. It sticks in some places. It doesn't in others, and because you have such a a fractured, broken down, um, delegated out response, uh, we're doing terribly, we're doing terribly. We had like a half-assed shutdown and then the shutdown ended and now everybody's kind of going back to normal life even though our cases are skyrocketing. And when you compare us to how other countries handle this, it really is embarrassing. It's like with a lot of things these days. When you look at our healthcare system compared to other developed countries, embarrassing. Student loan debt situation, embarrassing. COVID cases, embarrassing. And again, the crazy thing is we have solutions. We have things we could do to really help fix the problem, and we're just not doing any of it. Trump has no idea what he's doing. He's MIA, playing golf all the time, tweeting about the stolen election. This is as over 250,000 Americans are now dead from COVID. So listen, this is embarrassing, man. What an amazing dichotomy here. 20 straight days, over 100,000 new COVID infections each day, nothing in Australia. This wasn't written in the laws of nature and like, oh, it had to be this way. No, it didn't. We just made a lot of really, 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 really terrible decisions at top levels of the government and of power. And here we are. All right, guys, we're done, baby. I love y'all. I'll talk to everybody soon. Um, Have a great rest of your day. Peace.